Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale, seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey listeners, Ben Baldanza here. Great to have you with us on our weekly Flight of Fancy. I'm joined as always by co-host Chris Chimes. We're also going to be joined shortly by Bart Biggers and Kevin Lewis, who are partners in the aviation law practice at the firm of Sidley Austin. Hey Ben, hope it's truly spring in Washington. Definitely feels like spring here in Texas. Still following my basic rule of not planting flowers until after Good Friday, although I was out there a little bit today. Meanwhile, it's clear that airplanes are full right now. I heard from a friend that she and her daughter were on an oversold Southwest flight from Chicago Midway to Las Vegas last week, and they hit the jackpot. They each got a voucher for $1,200 to take the next flight out, which I think is a pretty sweet deal and indicative of how full flights are right now. Well, you know, Chris, I this week attended sort of a webinar by Sirium, you know, the aircraft scheduling data group. And they basically had put to presentation based on schedule files of around the world how capacity is returning. And their data show that exactly what you just said, that in the U.S., the number of seats being scheduled now is virtually at parity with this time in 2019. Well, that's what we've been waiting for. So hopefully it just continues. But Ben, speaking of deals... What about that out-of-the-blue offer by JetBlue for Spirit? You see what I did there? Well, Chris, those sounds that you just heard were because as a board member at JetBlue, I think listeners will appreciate that with this deal being so real-time, I can't talk about it right now. But maybe on a future podcast, we'll be able to discuss what happens here. Well, the crickets are for Ben, but that doesn't mean I can't say anything. So I think it was a pretty gutsy move by JetBlue. Um, It seemed like it caught Frontier a little by surprise, although they shouldn't be surprised. And, um, you know, Spirit has done the right thing and said they're going to open up discussions with JetBlue, although they're still bound to the frontier offer. So I think this is going to play out in different ways over the next few weeks and months. The Northeast Alliance between JetBlue and American comes into play as well. So there's lots of interesting melodramas that uh, are part of the story within a story. So hopefully we will revisit it, but also thank you to our listeners for understanding that Ben is not in a position to talk about it right now, but hopefully we can get to it at some point in the future. And then looking north uh, from the U.S., Canada Jetlines, where our past guest Ken McKenzie now serves on the board. Ben, that startup ULCC announced plans for its long-awaited launch for this summer. What do you think of their strategy to focus on the busiest airport in Canada, Toronto Pearson? I know you want to go where the people are, but that's kind of a different move compared to other startups who initially focus on an alternative airport with not a lot of direct competition. Well, I don't think you can say the words ULCC and Toronto Pearson in the same sentence, actually. (laughs) You know, one of the reasons that low-cost airlines in the U.S., most of them don't even fly into Canada. They fly close to Canada. Bellingham, Washington, Plattsburgh, New York, Niagara Falls, Detroit, you know, all these cities close to Canada, is that the, if you remember our discussion a number of episodes ago with Christina Casotis from Pittsburgh, we were talking about PFCs and how they're capped at $4.75 in the U.S. And Christina and others want that to be raised some. Well, in Canada, 
that fee is called an AIF or an airport improvement fee. It's the same idea, but they're not capped like in the U.S. So Toronto's AIF, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, I think it's over $30, which means the idea of a ULCC having really cheap fares when you're paying a 30 some dollar airport tax on your fee, how low can the fare be? Now you fly at Hamilton which has a much lower AIF, and you probably could have lower fares. It seems to me that they're figuring out that it's going to be hard to start an airline in Canada with a huge Air Canada, a restructured and getting smarter again WestJet, Bill Frankie's Indigo now investing and putting what will certainly be a true ULCC in Canada, since that's the only thing he supports. You have Flair that's already operating and may have their own issues. You got Porter also there, not really low cost, but a good airline. And so how Canada Jetline squeezes into that? how they compete with what will likely be a true ULCC that Indigo Partners sets up. They may be thinking, look, we're going to have to split the baby here and we'll be low cost because of our planes and the way we think of our business, but we're going to fly in places that maybe other low cost airlines won't. And maybe like AirTran in Atlanta or like Spirit in Dallas and Chicago, maybe we can carve out a little niche. So can you be a ULCC simply by calling yourself one? <laughs> you know, maybe the U meaning ultra for ultra low, maybe that has a different definition in Canada because of the <laughs> AIFs. So sure, you can call yourself that. Heck, if uh, we can call ourselves whatever we want in today's world, right? <laughs> well, the, 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 that's right. The currency exchange. you got to factor in uh, currency evaluation. So I, I remember when... U.S. Airways and America West merged, and U.S. Airways had that very privileged, we thought at the time, stock ticker of just the letter U. There were only, you know, there's only 26 companies with a one-letter stock trading symbol. And the new management team at the new U.S. Airways didn't want that, and so they came up with a stock ticker of LCC, suggesting that they were a low-cost carrier, even though they really weren't, but they were trying to tell the market that they were. So maybe part of this is just showing up and acting like a ULCC and convincing your potential consumers and others that they're going to operate like a ULCC and fares are going to be a little bit lower and pay might be a little lower and we go from there. I don't know. And it may be a way to just manage the expectation that when you fly Canada jet lines, maybe you're going to be charged for your bags. Maybe you'll be charged for what you eat or drink on board. And maybe the onboard amenities won't be so palatial. Maybe just by using that moniker, they give themselves the ability to take those kinds of positions with credibility with the customers. Yeah, exactly. It's the old adage, you know, a good part of life is just showing up. So just show up and call yourself a ULCC and see where it goes. That's right. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, who shows up all over the world as a leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And our friends at TA Connections partner with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed which means enhanced operations and true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Finally, on the news front, Ben, I got to ask what you thought about that DHL aircraft literally breaking in half during an emergency landing in Costa Rica last week. 
Well, Chris, I'm guessing you saw the video, and I would encourage all of our listeners to go and look at the video of that plane landing and watch what happened. It was a 757-200, you know, all-cargo airplane, meaning, you know, it was sort of empty in the middle because that's where they put all the cargo. And it broke just in front of sort of the tail section and just split in half. It's absolutely amazing. Now the 757 is a long plane. So like the 321 over its lifetime was more susceptible to things like tail strikes and things like that. But to see the plane just split apart like that, it's certainly a very old airframe being a 757-200. And many old airplanes have found lots of new life being refitted as cargo airplanes like this one has. But to see it break in half like that was just amazing. And I'm wondering what that means for the future of this plane as a cargo plane or what sort of airworthiness directives or ADs might be coming down the pipe to inspect and then maybe strengthen that section of the fuselage that happened that way. It's possible that it landed heavy, meaning with a lot of fuel, because it was emergency landing, and it's possible that contributed to it, but I don't know if that's the case. But either way, there's no way that uh, regulators aren't going to look at this figure out what had happened and see whether it was really a unique thing about this particular plane and the way it was configured on this particular emergency landing or whether it's a bigger issue for this plane as a cargo plane. Yeah, I didn't watch it just once. I probably watched it six or seven times because I wasn't sure I was seeing what I was seeing. It was just so unusual. It almost looked like a like a kid's puzzle or something you know when you like match up all the alignments of the puzzle it unlocks itself it it just it was such a clean break it was it was rather amazing and that's why i think all the more not distressing but all the more imperative that we figure out how that happened i think that's exactly right well we'll be right back with our guests from sidley austin don't go away promotional support for airlines confidential comes from the archive.net the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Our guests this week are a duo from the law firm of Sidley and Austin, Bart Biggers and Kevin Lewis. Kevin and Bart, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thanks a lot, Chris. Excited to be on. Thanks, Chris. We're happy to be here. We're going to ask you to give a self-introduction, and just so our listeners can also get a flavor of some of the things you've worked on. As part of that introduction, tell us perhaps the most interesting case or incident or event within aviation you've worked on. Bart, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah, Chris, growing up, I really had no industry ties, and I was not an av geek. But uh, in 1999, I clerked at American in my first year of law school. I was 22 years old, fascinated with the industry and got jet fuel in my blood. I've now worked in the industry for over two decades and ironically began my career on September 10 of 2001. So I've worked through September 11th, obviously, SARS, the financial crisis, all the reorgs, consolidation, and now COVID. I've been fully focused on the industry for over 15 years now. About 12 years ago, I decided to set out to build an airline practice where I thought there was a vacuum around it for transactions for airlines. Now I handle virtually all types of airline transactions for airlines around the world, including fleet, procurement, HR, loyalty, sales and distribution, corporate development, and regional. But if you want to talk about what's been one of the more interesting topics I've hit, I'm going to pass on talking about the, the financing that became a dip regional investitures, cool aircraft deals, including the boom supersonic that recently was on the Today Show, loyalty deals, but instead talk about the American Chapter 11 that was filed in late 2011. I had little bankruptcy experience, but you could say I had an advanced degree in airlines through the first decade of my career. I was chosen to lead the assumption rejection and renegotiation of their contracts, CAR as we called it, worldwide. The diligence included locating all the agreements, that required you to intimately know the airline, and that was part of my specialty. But as Gary Kennedy described this process in his book, we uncovered over 50,000 contracts worldwide. 
I didn't let a campaign for savings for contracts by assuming, rejecting, or most often we were renegotiating contracts with vendors. For someone that loves the industry, it was awesome. Also, it gave me the experience now that separates me in the market today. And looking back, breaking down an airline based on its agreements, working on those agreements, and then sending the airline off with the ones that they needed was an amazing experience. Kevin? Chris and Ben, thanks again for having us on. As far as my aviation background, I'm actually old enough to remember when the 747 was introduced and my older cousin got to fly on it and he told me about it and I thought, oh my gosh, this is like the coolest thing ever. So when I started practicing law in New York about 35 years ago, I was still thought planes were very cool and I jumped at the chance to take on as one of my first assignments an aircraft financing for American Airlines. And I was sort of, uh, I guess you could say I took off from there. A lot of work for lots of different airlines over the years, including particularly Southwest. And then starting right about the time you were there, Ben, Continental became one of my biggest clients and they've remained so through the United merger for about 25 years. I will say over the years, I have never been bored helping airlines through 9-11, dealing with uh, contingencies for oil at $150 and $200 in the mid-2000s. Uh, working through the financial crisis, the subsequent mergers, the pandemic and its aftermath. You know, if there was ever an industry that lives the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, this is it. And now with BART joining Sidley, we continue to be involved in super interesting work and just having a ton of fun presenting about the broadest airline practice of anybody around. As we like to say, we love working from the ramp to the boardroom. Now, as far as interesting deals, there have been a lot of interesting transactions, buying Continental's Freedom from Northwest, spinning off ExpressJet 20 years ago and buying and selling it another four times since, doing United's Atlantic and Pacific joint ventures. But I think the most interesting time by far has been the last couple of years, helping airlines survive the greatest threat they've faced since deregulation, the pandemic, of course. And I think there have been three stages to this. The first was to stop the bleeding And that required working with our clients to reconfigure the regional segments, reconfigure the mechanics of their international joint ventures, as well as renegotiating with aircraft left sores and taking other remedies. The second step was to get liquidity, securing both government funding and then accessing those markets for tons of debt and equity. I think it was involved in doubling the enterprise value of some of the world's biggest airlines in just a matter of months in 2020. And the third is to help them turn the corner and rebuild. This involves refleeting initiatives, sustainability commitments, developing new technologies, and repositioning the alliances to address the change landscape. This last two years has been a lot of turbulence, but it has just been fascinating. Well, you guys sound like a real power duo in aviation law. So let me hit you with one right up front. The Justice Department in the U.S., has allowed through the deals they've approved the industry to consolidate into four very large airlines, each representing close to 20% of the traffic in American United, Delta, and Southwest. What legal challenges would further consolidation face? Yeah, sure, Ben, happy to take that one. Our team at Sidley has actually worked in some capacity in almost all mergers since the late 1990s. So we have a lot of experience here. So this is obviously a very timely discussion based off recent events. We look at it from both sides. The obvious case is, is that people argue that this consolidation leads to higher prices, but we're not sure if that's always the case. And then that ignores the flip side and the less obvious case, which is there are benefits from consolidation. You can't run a far profit as a nonprofit. Investments in infrastructure like airports and aircraft just cost money. Without the profit, the airlines wouldn't be able to invest in those. And then the benefits to the consumer of those would not be seen. So while the customers would be frustrated with the aircraft not being updated, the airports not being updated. So really, if you look at it, we've had a nice run of profit recently until COVID hit. But then you also look at market consolidation also allows for airlines to schedule more heavily in a particular market. That can also benefit the consumer with more destinations and frequency from a market. So the benefits to the customer are there, but also there are benefits to the market in the sense that it provides the necessary infrastructure to actually grow the region. 
So there are two sides here, but the obvious ones are usually focused on a lot more, but we think the benefits are also ignored. So when we're talking about investing, there's also other categories airlines are now having to take responsibility for and actually show some leadership for. And sustainability is one of them. The industry's made some really bold sustainability pledges. Can they get there and can they afford to do that in a in a systematic way? Chris, I'm going to take that question. I'm actually excited to answer it because I think that what the airline industry is doing is pretty exciting. And I honestly don't think they get enough credit for it. You know, United, Delta, and American have all pledged to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050, as you're alluding to. And Southwest has established some different but nearer term goals for 2030. I think we had to take a moment to acknowledge the breathtaking nature of those pledges. No, no pun intended there. These companies comprise two thirds of U.S. domestic traffic, and they've basically promised to fundamentally transform how they do their business. They're agreeing to transport people in the future using an energy source that doesn't exist at scale with vehicles that are TBD. It is a uh, going to be a Herculean undertaking, which is why you're asking the question. It's going to require the investment of billions of dollars. And also, they are, in contrast to a lot of other industries that are facing this, these guys are a consumer-facing business, and they are committed to do this seamlessly without significant service interruption. So it's a, it is a tall order. I think the commitment they've made to it is impressive. But to your question, it's even more impressive when you compare it to what other industries are doing. You know, it's totally rational if you can get away with it for an industry to keep doing what it's been doing, to provide jobs for its employees, profits for its shareholders, and let the venture capital guys take on this higher risk profile of proving out new technologies and then wait for them to be adopted and then buy them or just adopt the technology you know, through licenses or otherwise. But I think the airline industry is jumping in with both feet because they know that it's going to be hard to produce commercial aircraft at scale unless you know that commercial airlines are going to buy them. And nobody's going to produce sustainable fuel unless they know it's going to be used by the commercial aircraft that the commercial airlines are going to buy. So they are betting that their participation in the development stage will actually turbocharge the technological advancement itself. And that's why you're seeing airlines such as United, American, JetBlue, Alaska, Qatar, to name a few. They are getting involved at the venture capital stage, which is a little different than the attack most other industries are taking. To answer the last part of your question, are they going to get there? Look, it's hard to say, right? We're talking about 30 years from now or 28 years from now. But I do think they are taking a more proactive stance about reaching that goal and betting that their involvement will increase the odds that they get there. And I think uh, uh, it should be applauded. And in fact, this is something we've been very active in as we've helped airlines do deals involving biomass, carbon capture, and sequestration, hydrogen fuel retrofitted engines, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, electric regional aircraft, and even sustainable fueled supersonic aircraft that made the Today Show in 60 Minutes. In fact, our work was recently recognized by Financial Times as the innovative law firm of the year for ESG and sustainability based off these airline deals. So it's been something we've been very dedicated to. Well, let's take that one step deeper and talk specifically about the EV toll planes you just mentioned, Bart. That's not really a replacement for existing airline flying today. That's bringing a new way to maybe get to the airport from the inner city or things like that. What do you think the role of EV tolls are really going to be or could be in commercial aviation? Are enough people going to want to fly these things? Yeah, that's the that's the million dollar question, right? Evitols are a lot of fun. It's something we've been very fortunate to be a market shaper in with some of the deals we've done, you know, just to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about here. You really just need to think the Jetsons. It's like a large SUV type aircraft with multiple rotors operating on battery power. There are model aircraft that are being developed currently. And in fact, there's even movement for infrastructure such as vertiports being developed. It is a little bit like the Wild West then where uh, there are many different manufacturers and ideas on their possible application. You know, when we look at that, clearly that from an airline perspective, Evitol can provide the ability to transport passengers into congested cities like New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. 
In addition, on the cargo side, there's similar applications that you could have for our instant on-demand society that we now all live in. But a fun question, which touches on what you were talking about, is what this may play in the regional market at some point. But that's even further out in its application than the applications we've discussed. So we really don't know where that'll go. One of the real questions we look into is, and we, we really just can't answer this now, is how private aviation will tie to this or what congestion that causes. Will it just create it to where the air is like the roads today, but there's really no roads to follow? So it's going to be fun to be involved in that over the next few years as the market develops. I also agree with all of what Bart just said, but I I also want to point out one interesting nuance. You know, a few weeks ago, Andrew Nacella was on this podcast and was talking about how the public can expect larger gauge aircraft at some of the biggest hubs. It's interesting to think of the role that eVTOLs might play in that, because if you're squeezing out regional jets out of those congested airports, eVTOLs might have a role to play in substituting that feed, or at least some of it that you used to get from regional aircraft. So it's going to be an interesting story to watch develop. Well, you got to have pilots to fly all these new aircraft. So where are they going to come from? I know United and JetBlue and just about every major carrier has got some kind of a program, but are they going to be successful? And how are you going to develop these pilots? Yeah, Chris, we've been working on pilot recruitment for over five years and dealing with a lot of the staffing shortages in the industry, not just pilots. I mean, since COVID, we've obviously seen this on the ground crews. It goes to catering. It's across the board. But when we look at it from the pilot perspective, just to touch on the causes of this, there's the 1,500-hour rule requirement for inbound pilots. We also have the age 65 requirement for retirement as well, which creates an outbound issue. And then additionally, we've had less military pilot production based off fewer conflicts recently. So based off that, we already had an issue. Then COVID hit and it gave some short-term relief actually, but now it has exacerbated the problem because you had early retirements for pilots that did not want to stay with the industry. And then also early entrants left and then fewer came into the pipeline. The problem with those issues is while we can deal with them for things like lobbying and such, we have no direct control over those topics. So the question is how we deal with it. The key is the pipeline. We have to build the pipeline, as I mentioned before. So the idea that on that, as you work with carriers, is you have to get with them early, whether degreed or not. You can provide bonus programs, loan programs, build up the flight academies, including buying them like we've been involved in the past. Also agreements with other operators like we, we work with carriers on. For example, a Part 135 carrier has less restrictions and they can gain their hours there to be able to make it into the pipeline. But finally, the thing that we want to touch on also is DEI. We have to add to the pool because women and minorities are significantly underrepresented as pilots, and that needs to change. And that will also create a larger pool for the pilots to come from. Great answer, guys. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Bart Biggers and Kevin Lewis. But remember that Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. Another issue facing the industry really since COVID is whether or not business travel has structurally changed, meaning is it all going to come back in the next year or so, or are businesses now rethinking how important flying on airplanes is to their business? If you accept that at least to some extent, business travelers will represent a smaller percentage of all travelers. How do you think this affects the airline alliances? Do they become more or less relevant to the big airlines? Ben, that's a really interesting question. I'll give you a lawyer's answer. They won't be less relevant. Uh, Let me explain why. First of all, airline alliances are inevitable if airlines are going to be profit-seeking businesses. That's because airlines are one of the most naturally international businesses around. And without legal constraints, you know, you'd basically have Coke and Pepsi. You'd have 
the blue airline, the green airline, and the red airline, and they would all fly everywhere. And everybody would be on team blue or team green, and that would be it. But you've got these national ownership restrictions that prevent that. So instead, airlines try to replicate the economics of a global airline because people are traveling across borders. And so for the convenience of their customers and to maximize profits, you end up with Star, One World, and SkyTeam. Now, clearly, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of video conferencing as a business tool. But just as we're seeing limitations in the work-from-home model, I think we're going to find that there's a limit to you know video conferencing, how much it can accomplish, and it's not always a substitute for being there. You might remember, Ben, that old United Airlines ad where you've got that old advertising executive and he's talking to his team about losing an account with an old friend because he hasn't visited him and he hands out paper plane tickets to everybody and says he's going to go visit his buddy. I think that the demise of business travel might be like that guy thrown on the, you know, dead people cart in the Monty Python movie. He's going to say, you know, I'm not dead yet. And then, I mean, you're right about business travel to some extent, but then there's also leisure travel. You know, the world continues to get smaller and more connected. Leisure travel continues to get more exotic. Nonstop destinations continue to expand as aircraft range grows. And all that means more international travel. And at the end of the day, all that means alliances. So, Kevin, you just gave us a lawyer's answer. So that leads to another good question. I mean, those of us who've been in and around this industry always kind of point out that we're overregulated and there's too much litigation and, and the like. But is it really? I mean, how do we compare to other high profile industries like healthcare or technology? Well, I used to teach a class in law school and we would talk about airline mergers and the airline industry. And I used to introduce the segment by playing a stand-up routine by a now canceled comedian. And in his routine, he would joke that airline passengers complain bitterly about the smallest items of passenger service. And they ignore the fact that they're sitting comfortably in a chair being transported more than a mile above the surface of the earth and moving at 500 miles an hour to another place on the planet where they're put safely back on the ground. That routine would get a lot of laughs, but I haven't read about anybody trying that one in court. I think there is a weird aspect to airline litigation compared to, say, tech and healthcare, as you asked about. You know, healthcare, everybody intuitively understands that's a life and death business. And so, you know, when there's an important outcome that goes wrong, clearly important to the patient, and there's litigation about it. On the other hand, technology not seen as involving the same danger to life and limb. So customers tolerate even important things that go wrong, right? You turn on your computer and, you know, you have to reboot it 15 times or you get the dreaded blue screen and people generally don't, you know, file a lawsuit at the drop of a hat. But somehow airlines, while they're considered like healthcare to be an industry that involves inherent danger, the passenger litigation is frequently over these very trifling issues. It's a conundrum. I don't really have an answer for you. On the regulation side, I guess I'll say, look, I am a lawyer. I see both sides of that coin. But I think you left one aspect out of your question as far as it being overregulated, and that is the highly unionized nature of airlines. You know, the union arrangements, as much as the regulation, constrain airline behavior in a lot of ways that are difficult to change in the short term. And they involve long and difficult negotiations that are important for both sides. So similar to the regulatory aspect, I think that constrains airline behavior a lot. So look, it's a difficult business. I don't think there are easy answers to, to any of those questions. Yeah, no, that's a fair answer. I mean, I used to tell the story years ago when I lobbied and worked in PR in the industry. One time, my then two-year-old daughter was sick with a urinary tract infection, and the doctor saw her and said, take her right to Children's Hospital. We need to get her an IV. They're all set up for you. Just check in at the desk in the ER. We sat there and waited for six hours, okay? And and I'm thinking, like, if I was an airline passenger, I could complain to the DOT, and I could, you know, there's a bunch of things I could do, but... In this case, where again it was it wasn't a life or death matter, but it was clearly a very distressed two year old. There was nothing I could do, no one I could complain to. You just sat there and took it. So, 
I generally agree with the concept that there is an element of overregulation in this business with the DOT collecting all kinds of data that I guess is interesting, but what's it for? Yeah. Another issue, guys, is fleets. And you mentioned you've done a lot of fleet deals. With the advent of planes like the A321LR and XLR and 737 MAX 10, narrow-body airplanes that can fly much longer range, and just the uncertainty of long-haul business travel, do you think the values of these big airplanes is dropping? And what's the implication of that? Yeah, that's a fascinating topic, Ben, for me, because I've been involved in both the XLR deals and also sales of uh, over 300 vintage aircraft over the like, last decade, including uh, large sale recently. So when, when we look at that, demand really determines the aircraft values. If you look at it now, long haul is down, so wide body values are also down. Many airlines expect that to return, but it's really a question of what is the yield from that. So then when you look at the XLR, you have to look at its primary purpose was to go primary market to secondary market. Think DC to Lisbon as an example. But the real question is, do you repurpose the aircraft to make it a primary to primary market aircraft? Getting back to the yield, the reality is, is the chasm is going to inevitably be higher on that aircraft because there's fewer seats. You can't actually say that the aircraft can provide greater scheduling flexibility with more flights, but that inevitably creates another issue, which is using gates and slots at restricted primary airports more. So as Andrew Nacella recently said, as he was on with you, uh, in the case of United, a future XLR operator, they actually plan to do the opposite and instead upgauge for primary international markets. So the answer is we think it's too early to tell for sure, Ben, but based off the current market conditions, we don't really expect that right now but very thought-provoking. So guys, as we wrap up, good lawyers don't just get their clients out of trouble or solve problems, but they also keep their clients from going places they don't, they shouldn't be going uh, and being aware of looming issues coming down the pike. What do you think are the top issues facing the industry right now? Yeah, as we're talking to folks, we're seeing, um, you know, there's a, there's two or three that are really at the top right now. Privacy and cybersecurity have been big for a while. And as that regime for privacy is still trying to be determined, it's still a little bit like the Wild West there as well. Uh, but cyber has actually recently taken on a lot more focus based on the colonial pipeline. That breach brought along the thought that, that our national infrastructure is at risk. And so there are now new regulations on infrastructure like airlines. And in fact, more recently, we haven't really even talked about the effect of the Russian conflict in this podcast, but there is new renewed risk, we believe, from Russia as well. So that's a topic that we're talking uh, with our, our clients a lot about. Kevin, do you want to touch on sustainability? Yeah, I mean, just to mention it, because it is one of the most important factors facing the industry. I think the, la the third and last important issue that we want to mention is just the obvious one about financial stability and profits. You know, this industry has lost a couple of hundred billion dollars in just two years, which is just, you know, uh, unimaginable. And I do think that lawyers who are helping their clients, you know, deal with their business risks just need to understand that the most basic business risk of not losing money is probably one of the most threatening ones right now, you know, compound that with high oil prices. So, you know, one of our clients has a corporate message that their job is to take people through their life's journey. And uh, they were joking that they need to amend that to say, taking people through their life's journey. Oh, and also make a profit while doing so. Yeah. And, and really, when we look at that, we say, okay, well, how do we make that profit? So, the first thing we have to do is get COVID behind us, right? And I think we're on the right track for that. And then, then in addition, remove the COVID restrictions, which we're on the right track for that. But then, as we said, both business and international demand needs to improve. And that will have a multiplying effect of 2x. One is that the demand has been MIA. And I'm not talking about an airport code, but also it creates higher yield we were just talking about. So those things need to return in some form to help 
create the profitability. We think that'll happen first in Europe on the international side, uh, Latin America, and then finally Asia, which seems to be the last to recover there. And then finally for the profitability is just to smooth out the ops. Um, it, it, it's been a rough uh, probably 12 months or so. I think things really kicked back off uh, more full scale around March of last year. And uh, we've had a, you know, a little bit over 12 months now that we've, we've been back at this. And uh, it's been a little rough smoothing out the ops, but we think that as supply chain smooths out, staffing, as we talked about before, it gets resolved. As we restart the world, literally, we think that'll smooth out and help add to the profit. It's a uh, resilient business, and I think uh, we'll see the industry bounce back. I don't know if we have time for it, but it's not bad to end on a Herb Kelleher story. You might remember that he used to joke about people saying, well, have you refreshed your corporate core message? And he said, you know, Southwest core message, you know, is kind of, uh, if you get it right, you don't have to refresh it. People ask me about refreshing it. It's like, do you need to refresh Deuteronomy or Ecclesiastes? You know, some things are just right. <laughs> but, uh, it's very dangerous to disagree with her, but I will say that if coming out of the pandemic, if a corporate message doesn't include making sure you're profitable, then with all due respect to her, you know, you got to refresh that message. Well, this has been a great conversation. And thank you guys for bringing a new feature to Airlines Confidential, which is a pair of guests versus an individual guest. You did a great job. We really appreciate having you here. And it sounds like you've got a lot of work ahead of you supporting this great industry. Thanks for having us on. This was fantastic. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Bart Biggers and Kevin Lewis for that conversation. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, please email your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from our faithful listener, Joe Freeman from Tampa, Florida, and he's asking about international air service rights. Ben and Chris, since United and Delta have international hubs such as Narita and Schiphol, why don't they position narrowbody aircrafts and serve domestic markets like they would here in the U.S.? Depending on the circumstances, Ben, this might either be a 7th Freedom or ninth Freedom operation on my take, but why don't you explain it to our listeners? Good question, Joe. Well, it's interesting. The rights that United and Delta have in Tokyo and in Paris, in Frankfurt to some extent, come from World War II, actually. They're actually spoils of war, if you want to use that term, that were granted to, at one point, Pan Am and Northwest Airlines. And those now are held by United and Delta because of the mergers and things that have happened. So their historical rights and they're limited in what they allow. I'm not sure, and, and this is a question that maybe we should have asked Bart and Kevin because they may have known the answer to this. I'm not sure whether the airlines have the right to base planes there and fly them the way you're saying. I know when I worked at Northwest, while they had the right to carry traffic from Tokyo's Narita Airport to other Asian markets like Manila, Sydney, Hong Kong, Singapore, and others. It was required as part of their right that the plane had to originate in the U.S. and continue through Narita in order to legally carry the traffic from Tokyo to that place. So that would be a case where it wouldn't have worked for them to just base narrow bodies because I don't think the authority they had would allow them to open up a domestic hub. What it did was allow them to fly through routings of flights from the U.S. and pick up local traffic, which is a little bit different. I'm not sure if that's 100% true of what that authority looks like today, and I'm not sure 
what the actual authority in Europe that Delta holds is. But my guess is that the authorities limit them from doing what you say. Otherwise, they probably would, and it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And again, these rights that were granted going back to World War II or post-World War II, when those economies in Asia and Europe were decimated, they almost viewed these extra rights as economic stimulus for them in the context of it gave them lift, let's say, from Narita to Seoul when there was no other carrier prepared to serve that market. So a Pan Am or a TWA in Europe or a Pan Am in Europe was flying that, providing some airlift in and out of Germany or Paris or Tokyo or wherever that might be. And clearly, the circumstances have changed too. So the the availability and the desirability of those rights have diminished significantly with open skies. And then, Ben, let's stick with the Tampa theme. Uh, when I was in Tampa, I noticed just how nice and well-signed that airport is. However, after returning to DCA, several people were getting on and off the shuttle to economy parking evidently tourists for the cherry blossom season, it kind of seemed like. And they were very confused by the lack of signage. I realize DCA does not have a lot of space, but why is it not compelled to become more tourist-friendly, especially in Terminal A where I was landing? Well, it's a great question, Dag. Thank you. I think this is just a focus of the airport director, to be honest. Tampa is obviously a big leisure destination, They want people to be comfortable when they land, know where they're going, feel it's like a real friendly place. The director of that airport, Joe Lapano, is a friend of mine. He's a really good guy. He sent me a vacuum cleaner when I worked at Spirit, which I thought was really <laughs> funny. Um, and uh, but, but I think that they go over the top to make that airport an inviting place because it's primarily tourists. Now, DCA, I'm sure, wants to be inviting. I'm not suggesting that the people who run DCA don't want people to feel comfortable in the airport or something like that. But my guess is they just haven't put as a priority, the emphasis around the signage and stuff. What they have done, which is extremely customer focused, I think, is through the pandemic, they invested a lot of money and moved what were individual security areas at each of the peers out in front so that now when you go through security, you have access to all of the services inside the airport. So if your flight is at one gate, it's not like you only have the concessions that are near that gate. You can walk out of that pier into another pier and go eat at Five Guys if that's where you want to eat or something. And so it's clear to me that the DCA team is customer focused, wants to make things easier. My guess is they just haven't thought of signage as the as a high priority of how to do that. It's also a significantly smaller airport in terms of physical space where customers are than Tampa is. So I'm not trying to make excuses for DCA not being as well signed as it could be, but it makes sense to me why Tampa is and makes some sense that why DCA didn't, hasn't made it as much of a priority. What do you think about this one, Chris? You know, I recall probably 15 or 20 years ago, there was a big push for better airport signage in general in the U.S., and especially better bilingual signage, um, which it seems has kind of stalled out a bit. And I also just think that I just notice a lot of times little things like directional arrows. There's a, there's a there's a sign in in Miami I walk by frequently where the Admirals Club is a sharp left like it's right here and the and the arrow above you is kind of like a soft left like a curvy left and those are the kind of little things that I just think probably it would help to sit and watch people react to signs after they're put up and maybe go back and do some self correction I think that's often the missing piece is, okay, update the signage, but then how are you measuring 
how consumers and airport passengers and employees, how they're reacting to the signs and how do you adjust them? So That's really insightful, Chris. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe we could ask Joe Lapano and someone from DCA to come on the show and talk about signage and how they think about it. Yeah, good idea. Well, as we wrap up for this week, I want to give my shout out to American Airlines in Philadelphia, actually. As a result of pilot shortages that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and a few other things, American is using bus service for some short services in and out of Philly. So whether you're going to Allentown or some other places close, rather than fly a flight, they're using bus services and offering it as a a flight, kind of like Landline does. And I think it's a terrific solution for addressing real concerns about pilots at the same time being able to provide good, reliable service for customers when the distance just isn't that long. Yeah, good alternative. I remember years ago taking a bus, a coach share bus, if you will, from Chicago here to Dubuque, where my wife's family was from uh, on a regular basis. So I think we're probably going to see more of that, especially these close-in connecting cities where there may not be a justification for a pilot crew uh, or aircraft right now, uh, given the shortages. And I want to give my shout out to Congressman Eric Swalwell and Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick for introducing federal legislation to create a no-fly list, which would permanently ban passengers convicted of assaulting a flight crew member. Maybe we can cut to the chase and have the TSA do this by regulation rather than legislation, but it's long overdue, and I'm glad a couple people have stepped up to keep this conversation moving. I like this, Chris, and I, I like this legislation One of the things that I think is important is the current no-fly list is also sort of concurrent with people on that fly list being called terrorists. I would hope that what we could do is create the no-fly list in the way that Congressman Swalwell and Fitzpatrick want to do without adding that moniker to people put on the list, though. Yeah, absolutely. They're criminals. They've been convicted of an assault, so I guess we have to figure out, does that apply to Will Smith? So anyway, (laughs) uh, so with that, we're going to wrap this show up for the week. Uh, We want to thank everyone for listening and look forward to seeing you here next week. And thanks again to Bart and Kevin for a great interview. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.